Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast. It's covering all of the franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. As always, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and we have another monster movie mashup for you here today. We're kind of traveling along the neighborhood. We've already visited the House of Frankenstein, and now maybe we're going across the street to borrow a cup of sugar or a cup of blood, as the case may be, because we are visiting the House of Dracula today. Really like the last real monster movie from Universal Studios with these classic monsters in terms of it being a horror picture. And I have had my co-pilot, the Igor to my Dr. Frankenstein, or really vice versa, (laughs) uh, when you really think about it. We have from Bloody Disgusting and from the movie in Manor Vellum and the Movies for Life podcast, Mr. Brian Kuyper. How are we? Hey, I'm doing great, and hey, we're hitting the home stretch here. Just a couple movies left here. Just a so, couple left before yeah. we move on. Yeah. But joining us once again, uh, he was on a few episodes again when we talked The Ghost of Frankenstein, and he's a volunteered for, like, you pick these ones. It's great. You're like... Eh. I do. I tend to pick the like lesser yeah. loved ones, like Chainsaw 3 and Chainsaw... 3D and got an infinity for them from the Dead Letter Movie Podcast, Mr. Andrew Fabry. Andrew, how are we? I'm doing all right. It's pretending it's trying to be spring out here, which is not (laughs) concerning at all. But it it is spring here today. It's 60 degrees. Although, oh wow, I'll say this: like for like 30 years, I think we always get like a week in February where it warms up. It's like. 45 50 okay. like i don't think this is anything new there's always like a short short stretch of february where it gets really really nice for at least like half of a week um so i'm not like super super con- actually it's kind of nice right now to have it not be dreary and cold so kind of lets you know that like spring is right around the corner the first time i went to boston i went there in february but not during the nice week you and went during I, like, slushy. Understood manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. Like it was like I left the airport. It is cold. It is humid. We 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 must move west from here. Was like yes. my first thought. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't like, blame you. Is, but I had a good time both times yeah. <laughs> that I've been there. But yeah, yeah, I it's it's cold. Um, Boston is super nice for like one week in the spring. We don't really get a spring anymore. It goes from being like oh, yeah. hoodie season, and then it's just ridiculously hot all the way through the summer we don't really get a spring anymore and then the fall is really nice like late september through thanksgiving is like the best time of year but that's about it otherwise it's kind of like meh but looking outside right now anyway that has been the weather podcast for us thank you (laughs) we'll be back next week to talk about sledding and snowshoeing and all those fun things so let's talk a little bit about let's talk a little bit about the house of dracula today and we all talked about our love for the universal monsters and frankenstein in particular um when we talked about uh ghost of frankenstein earlier so maybe jump into the background here really quick but andrew like looking at your notes like this is one you watched fairly early on yeah this was a this one in house of frankenstein i ended up buying like i guess with my allowance at like at like at mm-hmm. seven or eight or something so i had this on vhs for a while so i rewatched this 
like unlike Ghost, this has a lot better rewatchability. It, it for sure. For me. Yeah, I would um, think and, so. And the thing I particularly like about the old VHS of this is that it very much tells you that Frankenstein is barely in this movie, and that Lon Chaney is on it twice as both his regular self and his mm-hmm. man self. <laughs> and then, but in the predo- although it predominantly features John Carradine, which is also not exactly true. So, <laughs> but you can't have a Doctor Edelman on the cover of this like being the big guy if you want right. to buy your movie. not exactly bringing yeah. people to the box office mr dr edelman <laughs> not exactly the big draw at that point no so let me add when you bought like house of frankenstein house of dracula mm-hmm. were you using like the logic mindset like okay one monster is good but if i'm going to spend my allowance like four monsters that's where the money's at like i'm going to get the most bang for my buck yeah, I think at that point I had already at least been exposed to Abbott and Costello okay. Frankenstein, so I had already kind of known that having three of them around yep. is pretty great, and so like I th- definitely feel like that was like that's probably part of it. Mind you, I was also okay. seven, so you know yeah. <laughs> how 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 money <laughs> bang for my buck wasn't exactly a okay at the time. but it probably was no it's subconscious like you're not doing like keynesian economics but like at the same time (laughs) you know little like is it ben still to ben still or someone different who the hell am i thinking of with ben stein is who i'm thinking of like you don't have him talking voodoo economics and like telling you what movies (laughs) or what what to invest your money in talking about four four monsters is, or five i guess is how they advertise we'll definitely things. talk about that because poor nina like justice yeah. for yeah nina in this <laughs> she's uh, i think she's booked billed as the hunchback and it's sort of like yeah um that's cruel <laughs> yeah it really is so yeah, we'll definitely nina. get into that later on yeah. but let's talk a little bit about how this movie got made and we have not you know not quite as many notes as we did for house of frankenstein this one's you know not a lot of thought went into this one we'll be really honest like this one was kind of like all right after like 1944 there were plans for like a wolfman versus dracula movie which made sense like once the wolfman meets frankenstein you kind of got to do like he meets dracula and i kind of love this idea of the wolfman meeting all of the universal monsters like i really do wish they just had lon chaney maybe if he wasn't so surly he could have like done like a series of 10 movies like you could have gone all the way through the 50s and you could have had the wolfman meet like the guild man by the end of it yeah. Maybe you have a crossover with Toho and he meets Godzilla <laughs> and you have a radioactive, like 50 foot tall Wolfman fighting Godzilla. Yeah. How amazing would that have been? Only if we get radioactive 50 foot tall Larry Talbot, who's really tragic and reluctant the whole time, just like sitting on a mountain. Being Sad. Very, very depressed. <laughs> Love yeah. that. Just really don't you a... understand? Tonight I'm going to turn into a wolf and a 50 foot tall wolf. <laughs> <laughs> there is consistency in his character at least right yeah. you know <laughs> the original emo yeah. guy yes. yeah yeah oh yes yes what what is it that there's something tragic about him or something the uh, like uh, uh what's her, uh meliza or something I, i'm not 100 percent trying to pronounce that. Just, there's just something tragic about him and she meets a him half like, a second and, yeah. and he just comes in and yeah. yells at her like not even tragic like there's something he's kind of a dick 
He's like, don't you yeah. understand? I've come a long way. Like, no, like, I don't know where you've come from. Just, yeah. Did he? Wasn't he just there? Really? He really just was. Like, so, because yeah. they find him in the fa- same place they find the Frankenstein monster. So, how far could he have really traveled at that point? Unless he's, like, going around seeing the world. Maybe that's what he's doing. I don't know. This movie As we really know, doesn't give much time. of a shit about continuity. It does not. From the last nope. movie at nope. all. So It doesn't. Yeah. Nope. Because it's the same place, yeah. right? It's, like, the same. Like, it's not, like, the Frankenstein thing where they, they go to, like, what's it? like? Yeah, the Sarah, area. Yeah. This area, so it's like, does he just get some kind of like werewolf-induced death amnesia? Or I something? don't know. And like, I don't. They know. don't explain how he recovered from that gut shot either. Nope. So, mm-hmm. nor did they explain in the next movie how his werewolf cure didn't stick. Yeah. His bones rehardened. Okay. Well, I guess. Fair enough. I guess. I well, yeah. as far as the Wolfman versus Dracula movie goes there's no script that we can find from it but some details like some notes have emerged from it uh it would have been produced and directed by uh ford bb who had worked on a number of like serial films from the 30s and 40s such as green hornet and flash gordon but his bread and butter was like directing westerns like he really loved directing westerns in fact and in 44, he would have directed uh, John Carradine in The Invisible Man's Revenge. So he had some experience uh, with the Universal monster movies. Although, like, I know, Brian, you're much more familiar with The Invisible Man series. Yeah. The Invisible Man's Revenge. Is that the spy movie in the no, series? No, like, which that's one is the that? The Invisible Agent is the spy okay. movie. That's like um, World War II, you know, um, invisible paratrooper. <laughs> diving into you know kill nazis um so you know that's that sounds amazing cool. it's cool and all yeah uh the invisible man's revenge is actually kind of the most horror of the series okay after the first one it's um it just has i i really like the invisible man's revenge i think it's it's kind of a vampire thing. Ooh. Lots of blood transfusions and stuff like that. Not technically vampirism, but you know, still blood transfusions and all sorts of, yeah, he's, he's, he's a bad guy again in okay. that one. Whereas in most of the invisible man movies, he's just sort of a good guy who has been either driven insane or it's a comedy and it's a woman who just happens to be, turning invisible and being a model mm-hmm. and, you know or, or you have a spy so um it's sort of back to the invisible man being a bad guy again and it's kind of a fun one how many movies are there in the invisible man series um five I, yeah case okay, so there's invisible five. man return of the invisible man uh Visible Woman, Revenge, Revenge, Woman, Agent, Agent? and uh, well, Revenge is the last one, and then Abbott and Costello, so six, yeah, six, okay, yeah, ah, that might be a fun one to do at some point, yeah, because the first of the Visible Man is like one of my favorites. Oh yeah, the original in the Universal is canon. incredible. It's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, somewhere I have like pictures of me going as the Invisible Man for Halloween, and just uh, like all up done up. You. Just oh. yeah, you can't see the pictures. <laughs> I'm actually going as John Cena. Uh, it's like it works as like both. So, so some of the notes from the recovered, uh, some of the recovered notes. The script made 
reference to a number of folk songs. There was a moment where like a stake was driven through Dracula's heart, and there was like, a huge scream that would have been emitted when that happened. And there would have been a scantily clad character named Vaughn. So very intrigued about that last bit, but uh, <laughs> nothing like that happens here. Is there only one Dracula stake death in, like, in well, for Dracula? Because I think Dracula's daughter gets it with an arrow, right? Yeah. So yeah. Like, all the other times he gets, he gets, he meets the sun. So yeah, sure. That's pretty much it. Yeah. I've never seen Son of Dracula, but I mean that's not technically Dracula either. That's Alucard, right? Yeah. But well, it's but Alucard is Dracula, Dracula backwards. backwards so, so. Yeah. It's reverse Dracula. Which, I don't, yeah. Anyway, yeah. he he meets the sun at the end of it. Anyway, so oh, yeah. spoiler okay. alert. Yeah, that's for like that's a, the that's the one I haven't seen. So yeah, I started watching it because it's on Tubi. Mm-hmm. Okay. I started watching it, and I'll just leave it at there. That, okay. Lon Lon Chaney Jr. is Dracula is something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's got a dead kid in it, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, like not an undead kid, just just a straight up dead kid. Like, just a straight up dead kid. Yeah, I don't think I've gotten that far into it yet. So I will finish. It's only like an eighty minute, sure. like all of them. They're like not a. It's a you know they can breeze through it, but I have to finish it at some point. But the trailer was awesome. Yeah, but I think the trailer had like all the best bits. Like Cheney's just like mauling people in it, but I it's like a lot of dead space, and, and it definitely has a number of those like handsome universal stock men that like have all the personality of a wet dish rag like there is a lot of that going on in the 15 minutes or so i've seen so far so but anyway wilson model as you like to refer to it yeah the patrick wilson template as i like to call it you know so and people get very upset when i say that but i patrick fabian from the last exorcism and veronica mars and a number of other things that is the man who should have had Patrick Wilson's career because that man is a charisma machine. I love Patrick Fabian, um, so yeah, that's that. I will I will stick to that. Like, watch The Last Exorcism and tell me that is not the man you want to watch lead the Conjuring movies. Is he is okay. he the lead guy in the pa- in, in in the, the Last, last Exorcism? The, the, the yes. Last Exorcist, if you will. But yes. Not yeah, really, the Last uh, Ex. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah he I is the man that. with the yeah. the banana bread. Yeah, the banana yeah. bread. Uh, recipe love him in that movie one of my favorite movies of the past 20 years but that's neither here nor there anyway by early 45 the plan had changed the title was now house of dracula that had been settled on um and bb was still attached at the time to the project so for a short while universal was herald heralding bella lugosi returning to the role that he'd made famous as dracula but by the time the movie entered production in earnest by September of 45, BB was out and Lugosi was out. Uh, Paul Malvern would produce. Eric C. Kenton would return for the third trip to the director's seat for a Frankenstein film. And John Carradine would dust off the top hat to play Dracula once again, which I can't let the top hat go. What was Lugosi up to at this time, Brian? I think you would be the man to know a little more than i it sounds like i know he's not making movies at this time like if he's he's not making anything for universal at least yeah as far as i know he's just kind of barely hanging on i mean Mm -hmm. he did in 45 he's doing you know poverty body snatcher and he's in the body snatcher he's essentially an extended cameo 
six minutes, right? Yeah, yeah, where Boris Karloff suffocates him, which is highly symbolic <laughs> in a mm-hmm. way. Um, and yeah. um, it was it was actually, to hear Karloff talk about it, it was just sort of like a little bit of stunt casting, but a little bit of pity casting, mm-hmm. because the poor guy was just, he was just not able to get jobs anymore. He was considered... I don't know, box office poison perhaps by that point, or just hadn't really done anything that was of note for a while. And, um, I mean, Frankenstein meets the wolf man didn't help him. I don't think having all of that stuff cut from his role. And, um, so I don't really know details of this period, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, but uh, it's just sort of one of those nebulous periods where um, there's speculation, you know, like there's that book we've brought up a couple times, the No Traveler Returns books um, that talks about, you know, him like doing regional community theater productions of yeah. Dracula. Uh, it's like barnstorming theater where he'll go yeah. in... And he's doing two plays over and over. He's playing the role that Karloff made famous in Arsenic and Old Lace. He's playing that role over and over again for like basically four to six days at a time where they would do like double bills. But he's also playing Dracula over and over again. And he's like touring during the summer, like usually throughout New England. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was like after like 46, 47, through the early 50s. But like right around this time, he is still playing Dracula a lot, and he's just playing it in the theater. And he's getting pretty solid reviews for it. Like he's still able to scare audiences. He's getting solid reviews in the press for that role. So it's, it's surprising to me that he's not... And I guess that's why he's considered, and they're heralding it, but they, at the last minute pull him back and what's also surprising like we'll mention in a moment like cheney's difficulties like after this movie he doesn't have the reputation that lon cheney jr has like because i'm reading that book you mentioned brian like you recommended it. i had a chance to pick it up one of the through lines throughout it is how much people seem to enjoy being around bella lugosi mm-hmm. like everywhere he went they seemed to like being in his presence. He was really gregarious. He was really um, generous with his time. You know, he liked to be the center of attention. And he was kind of like the life of the party mm-hmm. very often. And he seemed to get on with everyone. I think it didn't help. He changed his management a lot because he was always yeah. looking for work. So one thing they talk about, I think Don Marlowe was his manager and we'll talk about him next week when we talk about Abbott and Costello and how he helped him procure that role but he would go through managers very quickly because he was trying to procure roles but people liked him and wanted to be around him and he has a good reputation as a human unlike Cheney who burns a lot of bridges during this period because of his problem with alcohol and at the end of this movie, he's out of his contract at the Universal and becomes like a four-hire player. Right. Now, Lugosi, was he was he having his morphine problems during this time, too? You know, 
I don't know. Like they yeah. hint at it in that in No Traveler's Return. The book is very pro Lugosi. Oh, they do. I, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, they they do bring up a couple instances where like a theater manager would say, "Yeah, I walked in on him and his wife looked to be." shooting him up but others would be quick to refute that Mm -hmm. if he was struggling with it at that time it didn't seem to be affecting his performances on stage like he was able to in the mm -hmm. 50s he was open he you know like said he did an interview as he was walking out of the recovery hospital Mm -hmm. saying you know yes i've struggled with this and you know but there are people here that can help and all these wonder you know he was actually like hey yeah uh he was hoping it would you know kind of help other people i I think the book will touch on it i haven't gotten that far into it sure um this would seem to predate his worst struggles with it if that's the case um because if he is struggling with it he's either a able to hide it or b it's not affecting his His performances on stage Mm -hmm. at this point um because he's able to like still give and he's pushing 60 at this point like he's a bit older um but yeah so it's it's just surprising that they weren't willing to bring him or give him more consideration especially given his performance and when we talk next week he's very loose mm-hmm. and he's having a really good time and meets frankenstein oh yeah and you know one of the running jokes in ed wood the tim burton movie is that he's so much scarier on stage than he is in the movie mm-hmm. and i think that's a <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing and um because every, by all accounts he was incredibly magnetic on stage yeah. uh but he was also just really bad with contracts and managing money and Mm -hmm. like he did dracula for like a quarter of the money that most people were getting paid on that movie it was he just was like he wanted to do it so bad and they knew it and he let him know that he wanted to do it so badly that they were were able to undercut him on and so he always had money problems and uh so that it's just a shame you know so, because he was, uh, he he has a he has a magnetism on screen that um, is undeniable. I think, even if you don't necessarily love his performances, mm-hmm. I think he's got a magnetism and a and a style to him that is wholly unique. Um, that people try to imitate and replicate, but no one can yeah. do it like he did. Well, the, Carradine comes back to play dracula again which does give a bit of continuity to the two movies which maybe it needs because as we've all said continuity is not one of house of dracula's strong suits at all uh it kind of like runs away from it um you're better off looking at these two movies as two completely separate entities from one another which is a bit odd because up to this point there's been some attempts being made at kind of keeping like a fairly strong continuity given the time period these movies are made in and that kind of flies out the window here at the end they're just kind of like fuck it who cares at this point um yeah because i mean like we don't know how dracula comes back we don't know how um the wolfman comes back from like you said is is mm -hmm. being shot by a silver bullet um they just show up they just show up and um whereas with everything that came before i mean oh 
we left them frozen in the ice underneath a castle. We better start there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, whatever. Um, right. That's one of like the things. bones of the bones of Dr. Neiman yeah. are, have been moved from the quicksand to the ice somehow. Like, yeah. I don't know how that happens, but magic, I guess. Um, what do we know about Carradine, if anything at all, as a performer, his career? Like, I just, to be quite honest, I know he's like he's probably his best known for playing like Buffalo Bill yeah. and doing westerns, correct? Like, to the degree that like he refused to cut his hair for this role, so they kind of make him pin it up yeah. for one. I, I, to me, he is David Carradine's dad. Um, well, I, I feel you know, kind of bad about that, but that's kind of how I like think of him. So yeah. he also has a really substantial role in you know like John Ford's Stagecoach, you know, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. sort of this oh. high prestige movie that you know even at the time was considered a high prestige movie, and sort of lifting um, westerns into the mainstream. Um, and Grapes but, of Wrath too. And Grapes of Wrath, yeah, that's right. Good, good yeah. point. Um, so he kind of, and I, again, I think he sort of succumbs to some of the same issues that, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. and Lugosi, you know, succumb to with dependencies and things like that. Because, I mean, by all accounts in later parts of his career, he mm-hmm. was all like drunk on sets and, you know, showing up to work um, inebriated and um, just not really... <laughs> But, you know, he sort of has this long... So he goes from these A pictures, like the ones you mentioned, so quickly into, like, the middling here with the Dracula role. And then he's in... He's in, like... (laughs) uh, I mean, I've mentioned uh, Billy the Kid meets Dracula a couple of Mm -hmm. times. I mean, that is... That's sort of like I'm doing whatever I can to survive territory. Yeah. Um, you know, he shows up in 1981. He shows up in The Howling, and he's a lot of yeah. fun. And he's sort of placed Let alongside. Me die. Yeah. Right. I love him in The Howling, but um, yeah, The well, Howling is awesome. I like I him love as old that. man, like old horror old, man. Yeah. He's he's a lot of fun in, in all of those movies that he pops. Yeah. In. Yeah. And then he's like House of Long Shadows yep, with, uh, you know, Vince, yeah. Vincent Price and Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are all in that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's kind of given this horror icon status uh, in sort of that later career. Um, but, you know, I, I can't claim that. I you're, you're right. I think of him more as David and Keith's dad yep. than anything. Yeah. I mean, he does play... Like you mentioned, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. He does like a Mexican-made Spanish language movie called Les Vampires in like 1969. Uh, he does like a Nocturna uh, in 1979, where the castle Dracula becomes like a disco. Nice. So the <laughs> I have to less check that out. Yeah, you know, I was going to say the less we say about that, the better. Oh, I'm sure it's terrible, but, but it, as long as it's fun, terrible, that's all that matters. Yeah, it might be. Um, it actually might be pretty great. Who knows? Yeah. So I have one note here uh, from the book Universal Monsters, which, again, great recommendation, Andrew. Yeah. Like, this would have been hard to do this series for the second half without this book, so thank you for that recommendation. Um Here's an interview uh, Carradine did with Fangoria years later talking about asking to play, uh, uh, coming back to play Dracula. 
he tells Fangoria, when they asked me to play Dracula, I said yes, if you let me make him up and play him the way Bram Stoker described him. It's an elderly, distinguished gentleman with a drooping mustache and a top hat. I added that last part in. Universal didn't like a big mustache, but loved the top hat idea. I added that part in. So I had to trim it and make it very clipped. British mustache. It wasn't really in character. So like they are kind of going for more of what stoker had in mind and you do see that here yeah, i mean yeah. uh, the mustache is window dressing either yeah. way but i do think you see more of that refined gentleman that you see in and i remember growing up i had like a book like the illustrated bram stoker's dracula mm-hmm. and one of the first illustrations was of like count dracula greeting harker at the at the door and when you see that dracula it looks more like john carradine it like does. the hair the mustache uh the way he's dressed like it does look like carradine so you can definitely see the resemblance in terms of what they're going for here how do you feel about gary oldman's top hat though if, uh... it's gary oldman okay, okay he can then it's gary oldman not too far removed from like sid and nancy mm, good point gary good oldman point. so true. like he yeah. can kind of do whatever he wants. Yeah. Like, I'm not... Uh, he's great in that movie. Yeah. Like, he's, you know, he's really amazing in that movie. So, it's... Um, I love Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. I absolutely adore that movie. A matter of fact, I was just thinking, like, Valentine's Day is coming up. I think yeah. that might be a Valentine's night. Yeah. Might be time to break out the 4K version of that that I bought before I had a 4K player. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm like, now I need to, now that I have one, I need to, like, break that open and watch that. So, yeah. I do, I have one question about Carradine, though, because you guys watched um, House of Frankenstein more recently yep. than I did. Does he look older in this one? He does. Okay, okay. And, and yeah. that was a specific choice they made. Okay, yeah, okay. I should have noted, like, they do make a specific choice to make him look older in this. And I think that makes sense given where they want to go with, like, the character here. Okay. So, okay, I'm just glad I wasn't, you know, when, when I was a kid and it was on VHS, you know, it. I couldn't really tell. Hard to but tell. This time, I was like, oh, he yeah. looks older this time. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of where they went with the character, where they wanted to go with the character, I'm not sure I completely understand that. So you guys will have to help me sort that out in our discussion. Because I was like, now now what, is there, what are they doing? <laughs> so okay. Anyway, um, but... Let's the, do that. We'll, Let's do we'll, that. We'll do that when we talk about the movie, okay. I'm sure. Yeah. So... We're going to say goodbye to it. I just have a couple final notes here. Mm-hmm. We're saying goodbye to some longtime familiar faces that we've seen or talked about throughout this series. Jack Pierce, like this is the last time that he's going to be doing the makeup for any of the characters. Like Universal, and we'll talk again more about this next week. Like they're undergoing some changes in management and ownership in the studio, and they are in cost cutting mode. Uh, 1946 is one of the most prosperous years in Hollywood history. Like once men start returning from the war, mm-hmm. people are going back to the theaters. 47, 48 are two of the low points in terms of Hollywood box office history. And like Universal's making the decision, like we're going to make fewer pictures and we're going to make them more prestigious, but we're not going to churn out 50 movies a year. We're going to churn out 25 and, oh, we need to cut costs wherever they can. And a big part of that is like it costs a lot of money 
to pay Jack Pierce because it takes hours and hours and hours to have people sitting in the makeup chair. And there have been advances in makeup over a decade and a half where you can get 90% of the Wolfman makeup done in half of the time. But Pierce was completely unwilling to change his standards, to compromise, and he felt like, I think, Brian, we've talked about this, like, Pierce's stance is pretty much like he's created mm-hmm. these characters, like, he's like the god that lures over them. I think that was like what Egrain had said. Yeah. He was like a little god or tyrant that lorded over his creations. Yeah, he was a Dr. Frankenstein in his own way, you know, yeah. um, and by the time we get to, it's actually kind of a minor miracle that he conceded to allowing them to use a rubber head on Boris mm-hmm. Karloff in the second movie and, you know, use the rubber nose on, uh, uh, for the Wolfman, for example, mm-hmm. because he just did not work in those materials. He worked yeah. in collodion and spirit gum and, you know, yak hair, um, yeah. you know, attached little bit at a time, you know, uh, so he, that was what he did. And so yeah. the out of the kit makeups that, you know, kind of came from the Cheney era, you know, were what he were his stock and trade. So for him mm-hmm. to go on to do stuff involving, you know, changes in materials was just not in the cards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, unfortunately, you know, he ended up in the end, you know, making Mr. Ed yeah. talk, attaching the yep. attaching the wire yeah. to his mouth so he, he would so the horse would talk. Yeah, that's how it, I don't think just... I don't even think he would have agreed to the change for for the rubber head if it wasn't Boris Karloff, because they, right. by all accounts, had a very warm relationship. So that's he maybe right. did that as a favor for Boris. But if it was anybody else, I think he would have been much more set in his ways. And I think he did that as like a favor for a friend. Yeah. But you're right. Like he goes on, he works on Westerns. He gets work where he can get it. You know, he. Mr. Ed would have been a high-profile show because that show was very... I mean, that ran in syndication up through the 80s. Like, yep. when I was a kid, that show was still well. on 30 years. I can remember the theme yep, song very the well. Theme song too, yeah. um, yeah. um, maybe I'll even drop it in here for <laughs> listeners. Because um, why not? Um, but, like, when he passes away in the 60s, his funeral's a very sad affair. Like, mm-hmm. the... Makeup artists guild like send flowers, but they vet send very few members. And like out of a large church in Los Angeles, maybe like two or three pews are filled out of dozens with mourners. And like the uh, reverend giving the uh, benediction is just kind of trying to come up with things to say on the spot because like people just don't have warm memories of jack pierce like he kind of made it made himself very difficult to work with so it is kind of a sad end for someone who professionally you know rick baker uh rob botine all of the tom savini all of the persons that we as like horror fans revere for their creation say this is the man that made me want to get into making makeup and i would say that like his frankenstein monster makeup to me is still the greatest makeup job in horror movie history to this day i don't think anything has transcended it no i don't think so i don't think there's anything that's ever been so 
iconic. I mean, that word gets overused, but in this case, it really is just a monumental achievement. I mean, people, Mm -hmm. I I swear, little kids, you know, I Mm -hmm. hold up my my phone that has a picture of Boris Karloff's Frankenstein on it, and they go, uh, oh, that's Frankenstein. And you, know, you say no, that's the monster. Frankenstein was the doctor. Phone too. There you yeah. go. That's the one I used to have. I got I got him playing an electric guitar now. But you know, oh, nice. um, but uh, it's uh, it's it's just that that thing you know where you know it's just so instantly recognizable because mm-hmm. it's just everywhere. It's it's yeah. saturated culture in uh, at every level. It seems that everyone. I mean, yeah. you got you got him on cereal boxes. I mean, mm-hmm. and to Every everything, yeah. That alone would have been enough to secure his legacy. Mm-hmm. But then to come back and create the Bride of Frankenstein, yes. the makeup for the Mummy, which actually might be more technically impressive, yeah. um, um, to create the Wolfman amongst yeah. other, you know, amongst his other creations, like to do all of that is like what a legacy to have. Like he was just a genius at his work. Uh, and that's why I think, like, as fans, we remember him as, as difficult as it appears he was to work with. Um, he was just someone that did take a lot of pride in his work mm-hmm. and was very meticulous. And I don't think we would be remembering, we wouldn't be remembering these movies as fondly as we do if we didn't have people like, you know, Jack Pierce and James Whale that like cared so much about what they were creating and just saw these as little B movie pictures for kids. Yeah. So goodbye, Mr. Jack Pierce after house of Frankenstein, uh, Lionel Atwill, uh, and peering as inspector Holtz. Like this is his fifth movie and it's going to be his last one. And he has like a little bit more of a role in this after three straight movies of uh, much smaller cameos. Mm-hmm. He seems to be maybe rebounding a little bit after the scandals that we've talked about extensively here. Um, but unfortunately, he's now going to be felled by lung cancer after this. Like he had other roles lined up, but he has to leave the picture and he's replaced. Like they have to have a body double fill those roles in because he, he remarries. He has a son. He feels like the scandal is behind him. He can maybe return to work uh, and maybe not get as prestigious of roles as he had gotten before, but not necessarily make poverty role films. He can raise his son, and unfortunately, he uh, dies of lung cancer in 1946. Uh, so he does not have much time left after this movie is released. So this is Lionel Atwill's last turn in a Universal monster movie. And not necessarily his last go in a Universal monster movie, but Lon Chaney Jr., he's let go of his contract after this movie. Like They basically say... Very difficult to work with. Um, he could either be a real sweetheart, uh, especially with children on set. Like he was very good with kids. Yeah. And he was also very good with older performers, like where he would tell you, like, you're going to like treat older performers with respect, make sure they have chairs, make sure they're taken care of. But he would also like smash glasses over director's skull if he didn't get along with them. Or he would show up on set very drunk and very belligerent. Um, he and Evelyn Anchors, who he co-starred with in the Wolfman movies, did not get along. 
at all with one another. And by the like the late 40s, Universal was like, enough is enough. Like, this guy. And you see him in this movie. Like, it's only been five years since The Wolfman. Yeah. That's a long, that's a hard five years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Cheney is one of those, he sort of limped along for a while, but yeah. Um, you see him here even, and then compare that to like spider baby. And he, <laughs> yeah. he looks, he looks like he's about a hundred in that movie. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. but and that's uh, only, was that, that's, is that even 20 years in between? About 20 no, years. Is, yeah. that, is it about 20 years? It's in the sixties, right? Uh, so maybe not yeah, even twenty so years. Like Sixty-four or something like that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, about twenty. Yeah. I he have you guys ever seen any of the Inner Sanctum movies? I have not. So he has no. this like. So when I was like, when I was when I first watched this movie, I was like, "What's with the weird mustache?" Um, and apparently, like that was like in the inner. I did not know about the Inner Sanctum movies until I was in college, and so it's just like these Universal radio tie-in with the inner sanctum mysteries where and he is in every one of them and he looks the exact same in every movie with the mustache but he's playing a different character every time Mm -hmm. and for some reason even though this is like his last one they don't make him shave it off and i've always been kind of curious about that because it seems because it's this is released between strange confession and pillow of death by the way, Pillow of Death is a, an amazing title. Um, and I cannot tell you... I have seen these movies, but I cannot tell you what happened in them. Um, I remember... We need to yeah. com- do a double feature of this and The Bed of Death, The yeah. Bed That Eats. Oh, The Bed That Eats, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Um, so was it more or less yeah. like a serial? But no, like it wasn't. Feature, because he's playing a but different they were character like every time. <laughs> yeah. But they were like feature length? Okay. Yeah, well, they're about an hour each. Um, oh, so, okay. I mean, yeah, feature yeah, length, yeah. technically, but... They're all they're all B movies. Um, they were definitely sure. supposed to be with a with an A with an A picture, and sure. and like they're like I don't know. Like I feel like he's there's a little bit of that bleed over into that, and not just the fact that his mustache is like that, but he often plays like a tragic, sad bastard character in those movies too. Sure, yeah. And, and so like I feel like like there's a lot of that in this performance this time, and also. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just interesting to see where he's at here, and it's hard not to like think about those movies when you know they exist, because um, it kind of explains a lot about where he's acting at that time. Because he just mm-hmm. made like f- five movies in this particular world, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is his fourth go as Talbot, and he's always good in this role. Like he's yep. is Larry Talbot, but. There's a bit of like, okay, we've seen it. Like, there's no real evolution to this character. Right. And I think that the next movie kind of like mines that for some real comic potential, I think, when we see what's going on. So this is released in the uh, late December uh, 1945. I almost said 2045 there. This movie (laughs) is released in the future. Um It's released in late December 1945. What's interesting here, it's like one of the films, reading that Lugosi bio, it's one of the films that's cited by theater owners as like too frightening and a reason why cinemas were reluctant to show horror movies for a while in the mid to late 40s. And it's kind of like fascinating to note that like after World War II ends, 
horror's taking on like a newer, broader definition. Like studios are considering showing the like documentaries, like the real life atrocities that occurred during the war, especially footage taken at concentration camps. And they're saying they have like an obligation to educate the public, saying like these are going to be difficult to watch, but we need to make sure this never happens again which makes sense i mean if you think about who is running like it's a lot of like jewish men that are running studios and you can understand why they would feel an obligation um, and they would feel that very deeply and very personally to say like their brothers their sisters like were the ones that suffered overseas amongst other persons of course like lgbt and catholics and romani and the disabled also suffered uh, and the the intellectually disabled also suffered under the nazis but they're saying we need to like maybe show this footage to audiences in order to educate and inform the public so you're seeing these movies rolled out of like what we found when we liberated the concentration camps and when you watch that and you compare that to frankenstein you know fending off like the villagers with torch and pitchforks it's hard to call that like horrific at that point right right it's it just doesn't compare well it's interesting because um the response after world war one was kind of the opposite uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know, had wounded soldiers coming home and the impulse was to like German expressionism came out of that. Mm-hmm. And so you have actually quite a bit of, I, I mean, um, David J. Skull in yeah. one, one, I think it's uh, in the monster show kind of makes, show, ma- yeah, he, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And Hollywood Gothic too, uh, which is mm-hmm. about the making of Dracula. He kind of makes the case that horror essentially exists as a film genre because of world war one um because uh it was a way to sort of um i guess exercise the demons of those of of the sites that were seen and what was felt and the experience of world war one um so world war (laughs) two kind of had and had the effect perhaps of the uh, the opposite effect where people are like there's enough horror in the world let's you know it, it kind of takes on a different form though because you look at film noir that mm-hmm. has a lot in common with horror yeah. films and i think that there's um there's sort of that the, the harsh reality i guess is sort of mm-hmm. made the real horror you know that's a good point uh, yeah it's it's a i don't know i i haven't the, intellectually sort of examined all that thoroughly but i but i'd be curious to see if that is a trend that happens and i'd be something i'd be interested in looking into and it kind of explains why you know like uh the val luton films are very much Mm -hmm. like noir films with horror elements yep yeah i think there's there's uh there's a lot of atrocity that we think about with world war one with that whole like um that jacques thing that scal was really Mm -hmm. into pointing out Whereas I think there's a lot of existential stuff with World War II, mm-hmm. um, even yeah. though it's all, even though it's also atrocity, of course. But I feel like yeah. we, as a society, we started looking at it more. It put us more in an existential sense. Um, I mean, we even, I mean, that's even when you know when Camus and Sartre start really doing their writing too. Is at that time, 
And so I think that that makes sense to go into film noir in my in my right. into in, into my intellectualized totally off the cuff you know, yeah, that's, at this moment. mine's yeah. pretty off the cuff too. So yeah. yeah, when you develop a weapon that can wipe out cities, yeah, yeah. and then within five years of that, have to further that mm-hmm. weapon so it can wipe out like large swaths of a country. Everything else seems smaller mm-hmm. yeah. at that point, and now you're wrestling with that reality, and people are wrestling, and, and by the by. There's, it's, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of the name of the book I read over the summer, but like when, when soldiers returned from, from uh, Japan, and the way we were, kind of like publicizing what happened in Japan, we were really downplaying and say the bomb wasn't that bad. It was not a big deal. They're rebuilding over there very quickly. Um, there's not really a lot of radiation fallout. And, like, there were jokes being made, there were skits being made, cartoons. Like, the public was really not aware of just how bad, not just the immediate aftermath was of the bombs falling on Hiroshima, but also the fallout afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it took, like, a reporter from the New York Times, like, getting access to go in and doing, like, a long-form, like, expose, like, interviewing actual survivors and having that published. Mm -hmm. And doing some real journalism where the tide of public opinion like actually turned and people were like, wait a minute, like we were, this one was being withheld from us and we didn't know exactly, because it was such an, I mean, it just seems ludicrous now when you think of it and we know the effects, but trying to remember in the context of the mid to late 40s, like yeah. this is all brand new yeah. and difficult to comprehend, like seeing the actual fallout and then understanding how bad it was, like that is when like public opinion started to like really shift and i think that's when you do start to see more of that existential dread where like our personal problems seem much much smaller at that Mm -hmm. point yeah Yeah. who knew we would get to this point talking about this little (laughs) mad scientist silly old monster mash yeah yeah because i mean it's really the 50s that explores the mm -hmm. the nuclear side of things and you know you get gojira and then Giant yep. tarantulas and ants and yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah so. so theater owners are like, and these movies are like tame to us now. It's, and they're tame compared to like Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula. Yeah. But like what they end up having are a bunch of like parents that are complaining about these movies. And the movies are filled with kids that are like running around and acting rambunctious. So the theater owners are like, we're only going to show these movies like late at night, which isn't really worth it to them. Mm -hmm. So they're like, why are we going to bother showing horror at all at this point? The other thing that happens during this time, theater owners and universal and other studios are like, we have this huge backlog of this whole vault of movies what if instead of making more movies, we just throw our our vault back into circulation? So, and that actually was a thing that came up when talking about and reading about Lugosi. Part of the reason he couldn't get new roles is he was, he was competing against himself. Mm. Because he's like, actually on, like, Dracula is back in circulation. The um, Mark of the Vampire is back. Murders on the Rue Morgue. 
Black Cat. All of his best roles, they're being played over and over and over. And these movies are making bank. So Universal's looking at it and they're going like, we could either make all this money on just reissuing these movies. It's pure profit for us. Or we could spend money and make some of it back making new movies. And they're deciding, let's make fewer movies but just like release these old movies back again. So these movies from the 30s and 40s, they're getting redistributed again and they're getting played uh, and they're introducing new audiences to the original movies. So that's kind of also going on at this time as well. And that's the first the first real monster revival is during during that. Yeah. And that's when Famous yep. Monsters happens and like mm-hmm. all of that, yeah. Yeah, and we'll really see that in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. when television, television becomes yeah. a thing. Yep. Shock like, theater. that's where it yeah, really, yeah. yeah, shock theater is mm-hmm. a big one. So I did, like, there are some reviews here, um, and they're pretty dismissive. Um, Frankenstein's little boy doesn't die easily. So again, Frankenstein's <laughs> little boy. You can call Glenn Strange many things. Little boy. Not one of them. And unfortunately, neither does this type of cinematic nightmare. That's from the New York Times, uh, December 22nd, 1945. Universal is still substituting quantity for imagination in horror shows from the New York Herald Tribune. Uh, It is plenty of suspense, dark dungeons, and satisfactory performances by the entire cast. Mrs. Glenn Strange, no, that is the motion picture (laughs) exhibitor, 1945. Rating, one and a half stars. Positively guaranteed not to scare the pants off of anybody. Unfortunately, the film hasn't the capacity for being funny either, as is often the case when synthetic horror becomes too rambunctious. The New York Daily News, December 22nd, 1945, Dorothy Masters. So, you know, we've seen these movies, even the ones we haven't loved. Mm -hmm. We're like, man, these are getting like shockingly good ratings. Um... This one, not so much, yeah. which is surprising. Yeah. I actually really like this movie a lot. Like, it's a lot of fun. Yep. It's not a great movie. Uh, it's not like uh, this or Taxi Driver, but, you know, it's... <laughs> like, I wonder... I mean, like, it's not like this was... this. I mean, the zeitgeist wasn't like this back then, but, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's like what slasher movies were like in the 80s and how Sister yeah. Gabbard, like, they didn't... I mean, I, first of all, they just didn't like it, but I also think they got tired of them. Sure. So like, I think like, Oh, I got to do another one of these. And then like, and same thing with like Marvel now, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to talk about one of these again. And so like, I wonder if that's part of it, but I don't think they, it went to that level. These movies back. I mean, they were popular, but I don't, we didn't really have a, monoculture like that what we don't right now but you know what the I mean. saturation yeah. the oversaturation of pop culture wasn't yeah, there where like like that back then yeah yeah like you're aware of like the marvel like i have not seen a marvel movie i think since the last doctor strange yeah and even then but, um, i saw it because Raimi directed it um yeah. yeah we went because like it was too cold to go to like the i think the thing my daughter wanted to do for her birthday was like too cold to go do like she wanted to have like a walk on the beach or like it's freezing cold and we're not gonna go do that so we like chose the go here there instead we did the mall and then that with some friends 
and I wouldn't have gone otherwise, I don't mm-hmm. think. But I'm like aware of all the Marvel movies, yep. and if I try to ignore them, like you can't escape them. Um, you know, much like the mummy, he will catch up to you yep. in the end somehow. I like somehow. the idea of like either either audience members or critics being like, "All right, who's at will playing this time?" Like that being like a through line that they kind of look forward to each time or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's playing Krog <sighs> without the. Without the fake arm. Without the arm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's pretty close. Yeah, I almost thought it was the same character for a minute, and then I remembered, like, oh, yeah, no fake arm. Like, I don't know, maybe he grew an arm, or maybe the continuity was, like, so bad, they just said, like, ah, who cares? No one's going to remember that anyway. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this movie. And I guess my first question is, like, we all kind of had this in our notes. For a movie with so many popular monsters, why do they never seem to go up against each other in this movie? Like, there is no Wolfman, Dracula. And it started as a Wolfman versus Dracula movie. They don't interact in Iota. Like, what's going on? Yeah, they sort of compartmentalize everything. Uh, in both of these, really, uh, you've got in House for sure, and uh, House of Frankenstein for sure, and then here again. But I mean, this—I mean—they weave in and out a little bit more than they do in the previous one. But yeah, you—you you could, I mean, you can imagine a nice tussle going on. Mm-hmm. You know, three. You know, like an all-out WrestleMania, right? You know. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I don't know the terminology. I'm not into battle royale. You know, you, you would Smack be able down. that boy. That, you yeah, battle royale. Yeah, battle royale. You know, you, yeah, you can just royale. see that going on. You know, Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, and the Wolfman. Just you, you know, tag you get team, more of it in an Abbott and Costello movie where. Like, Dracula and the Wolfman are throwing down. They're, like, going around tables. Frankenstein's running around. Like, like Dracula's throwing potted plants at the Wolfman's head. Like, they're going at it. And it ends, like, on a pretty cool moment where Dracula tries to fly off. And the Wolfman, you you know, you don't see it, but you got to imagine, like, when he grabs Dracula, is like, rips his wings off is kind of what you think is what he's going for there. It, that's in a comedy you know it's a comedy where like yeah. frankenstein throws a woman out a window you know <laughs> yeah. okay. okay so here's the thing i'm wondering now that we just said that um what if the big bosses were like if we have too many of them on at the same time it's gonna seem silly and so when i mean not like they had happen because mm-hmm. like in their mind at the time but maybe that was like a thing that people kept it no if we have all three of them at once audiences are going to think it's ridiculous or, or something like that and they'll laugh at it and then that's why they're like oh well wow we can do this i don't know i don't I know man to back that up uh, with, maybe I, I don't know if it's like a shooting schedule thing i don't know if it's like oh i bet that's part of it and uh yeah yes, that's a good point to the yak one, hair because um, there's yeah. very little wolfman yeah. Like in the one Wolfman scene yeah. you get, or the one and a half Wolfman scenes, like he transforms, sh- shakes the bars, and then he just kind of like goes to sleep. He's like, oh, okay. Yeah, what's up with that? Nappy yeah, time. Like, yeah. that's a bit yeah. strange. Yeah. We, we could have done this yep. 
two movies ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, and he just takes a nap, I guess. He mm-hmm. just kind of gives up. He's like, I'm, I, I can't, I can't yeah. break the jail cell, so I guess I'm just gonna go to sleep. He's not, you know, like hit with a yeah. dart or anything. You know, maybe there's silver bars. Maybe silver maybe bars. They just didn't say that. that and him sure. Just messing with I didn't come here to be put on display. <laughs> well, what did you come here for then? Whiny son of a bitch. So, yeah, it's just like really odd <laughs> that. And it's not quite the anthology style of the previous movie, Mm-mm. but it is really odd that that is the route that these movies go and that there's like very little interaction here between like your main four villains at this or three. Yeah, four villains between them at this point. Um, yeah. I find that strange. Let's talk about Dracula because this this is the House of Dracula movie. Mm-hmm. I know that I was very harsh on John Carradine when we talked about House of Frankenstein because he is definitely not my favorite Dracula performer, but I do think that he is much stronger here. And I I do yeah, I like this idea that like he is coming to Endelman for this idea that like after centuries eternity has gotten old that he has lived this like undead life of loneliness and you can imagine that all right after centuries if you have made connections with others that they have all either lived a human life and have died they have passed on and you're left alone again or if you've turned them they have grown tired of you or you of them and they have moved on from you right um and we uh what we do in the shadows like the movie like they kind of touch on this a little bit like there's the vampire human relationship and it ends on a pretty happy note where he reunites with his girlfriend from when he's like a young man like he reunites her with and she's like an elderly woman so it touches on it a little bit here but what do we make of this theme of like maybe eternity isn't what it's cracked up to be and that like at the end of the day what we really want is an end of our day when you got old vampires that uh it crops up from time to time and since then um, but one of the things that I'm wondering, though, because of how things sort of play out, is if he's just kind of bullshitting this whole thing. Because to it's like, hey, you've got a you've got an attractive assistant, and I just want to get with her, and that's and I want to create a new vampire bride for myself, and so that's why I'm. I don't think so. That's that's because he does what do I the transfusion. I, I, I don't know if he's. Sincere I don't think he is at first. Yeah, I think he, he does do him. the trans. And there's like that's a lot of subterfuge. Like I'm going to move my coffin into the home, and that's a not well thought out subterfuge. Given how it ends up, no, it's really well. The thing is, he's yeah. That's that's an important rule of being a vampire is never tell anyone mm-hmm. where you keep your coffin. I mean, that's just like, never you know, that's like the first, first, uh, you know, rule on the list, you know. Um, so they play that nicely in Hammer's Dracula movie, the first one, you know, where they track down, finally track down where the coffin is. But here it's like, hey, he told you like right at the beginning no. where his coffin was. And he puts the thing right next to a window. Yes. I know. Like, Not very bright. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's a very stupid Dracula <laughs> in, in this one. Um, yeah, and I'm kind of though I I am with you with like it makes me wonder if he's used this whole eternity sucks thing before and like this is like his I don't know it does seem you're Mike, Mike you're right it does seem weird to go through all that blood stuff if it wasn't I don't know it just comes off as like a really weird like play like he would have like like I imagine like Ryan Gosling and Cra crazy stupid love if he were a vampire using mm -hmm. this kind of story like you know it's yeah. just it's I don't know I, like I, I like the idea I love this I think idea that's interesting but we don't really that's the problem it. is it gets it's, it's I think the thing. problem is it gets yeah. dropped so abruptly and with no explanation mm -hmm. yeah because there's no reason that he can't yeah. be with Melissa is a human unless he thinks he has so little charisma as a human being that Melissa will mm -hmm. like immediately go to like because you know the the romance on screen seems to be heading in a Larry Talbot Melissa situation again like Larry Talbot yeah. just shows up yells at a woman and they're immediately like I can fix him like every freaking movie is that <laughs> picture you know it's just. Something about like Lon Chaney Jr. Just like they women think they can fix him. Universal really seems to be in yeah. the mopey monsters right now because you yeah. got mopey Dracula mm -hmm. and mopey Wolfman. And you know, would have been mopey, he's maybe. kind of a mope in yeah. Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, I love dead, you know, yeah, I yeah, love true, dead, dead is better, we belong dead. It's like, all right. Yeah. Who's that writing Panic at the Disco yeah. lyrics there? Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. So, I mean, this really is the first time we see this trope. Because it is a trope that vampires are going... Like, vampire films are going to return to over. And I'm not saying that it's like all stems from this. It seems like a pretty obvious one to kind of call from. But you see it in... Yeah. Like yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer with like Angel and Buffy, where he's like, I'm a 200 year old vampire that's alone and mopey, and I've lived centuries on my own. You see it in The Lost Boys, you see it in like Near Dark, this idea. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but you see it in Twilight. Um, this idea that like yeah. there is this like sad romanticism about vampires, and ultimately, oh, exactly with you're doomed to yeah. live forever but that is a double-edged sword that you're eventually going to be alone mm -hmm. that you're going to have to watch everyone around you grow old and die and there is something really sad about that so i do like the idea of it here uh, and i do think that like i can see where coppola is getting his inspiration for how he wants Oldman to play Dracula in his version of the film here, especially when you get to the Moonlight Sonata scene with uh, Carradine and mm -hmm. uh, Martha Martha O'Driscoll, who's going to play the assistant, uh, Meliza, who O'Driscoll doesn't have a long career. Like, it's really, like, 44 to 47. Like, she's in a couple dozen she said like about a dozen things like maybe up to like 15 movies like one after another but then after 47 she's just out of hollywood at that point um mm -hmm. and she doesn't have necessarily a lot to do in this movie but i do think that in this one particular scene where she's playing moonlight sonata like there is a real i think like mm -hmm. sexually charged chemistry 
that I don't think Lagozi yeah. would bring, especially at age sixty, mm-hmm. to this role. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's a surprisingly like, like I think this is like the first time Dracula is like sexy again since mm-hmm. the first one. I mean, you know, in in so much, I mean, like that scene works really well, even though he's like, like positioned between candles, which is a thing that looks cool and silly at the same time. And but it like it really works, and for some reason, but I totally agree. I don't think sixty-year-old mm-hmm. Bale could have pulled that no. off. Because yeah, because they he tries to like romance girls in meets Frankenstein, and it comes off kind of yeah, weird. comes off as very off-putting and creepy. Mm-hmm. Not in a good kind of like this is supposed to be creep, but young Bella Lugosi could yeah. like Brian, like you mentioned, like young Bella Lugosi, oh, yeah. very handsome. Yeah, he absolutely could get, could get it. Yeah, I mean, get, yeah, I was waiting for one of you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at uh, like the early photos of him, you know, mm-hmm. it, from Hungary, man, he was definitely handsome, and you know, had a mm-hmm. air about him that just absolute you know i could i could see you know why women were swooning for him you know clara bow when he got to america you know they had a torrid affair Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's fascinating story that i sort of recently learned i just find that it's like man bella could get it he got a painting clara yeah the nude painting of her yeah from his memory clara Um, clara bow yeah yeah. sorry and what did he He hung it, it hung yeah. over his bed until the day he died. <laughs> you know, through yeah. all of his other wives and everything was this nude painting. And that is a baller a move. Like, that is an absolute. Yeah. <laughs> that is a man. There's a photo of him sitting on that bed with that. Now, does he have. Above him. It's like it's... the ultimate neg. It's like does he have, like, Beller right? Jr. on yeah. his lap? Um, like, like, for that picture? <laughs> Uh, in that, no, not in that picture, but it's, uh, yeah. And it's, he it's, uh, would it's continue, like, womanizing late, like, when he was yeah. on the road doing those, like, uh, you know, the barnstorming theater, the Summerstock theater, I think is what they would call it. Like, he would definitely try to get with many of his leading lady. The If you were playing Lucy in a Summerstock production of Dracula, mm-hmm. he was definitely trying to make you his vampire bride, is what I will say about that. Even when married, he was like, you know, I would love to make you my Lucy and travel you around the world, but I would have to kiss you on the neck everywhere we go. Just Bella. Just picture him. So maybe poor Bella is not. Just picture him saying that, (laughs) smelling like old cigars and morphine, and it's not the prettiest. Yeah, there's a, there's actually like a picture of him as Dracula, where he's like in front of a door, and you can see where he Mm -hmm. rests his cigar, um, on like one of these like ornamental nub things on the door, and it's not good. Yeah, like yeah, and so yeah, that cigar thing is apt. Um, His 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 teeth were. Yes. Dark. Uh, by this point <laughs> in his career. Oh, man. Um, but there is this... I, I, I do like this scene, but... Dracula may be the dumbest of all the universal... He... Yeah. yeah. For a guy who's lived so long, he can't he tell time. Better. He really like, should. Like, right. what if I execute yeah. this really complex time 
plan that relies on perfect timing and I do it 15 minutes before sunrise. Not a good idea. Once again. And then when Edelman is on to him, like when Edelman is on, like knows what's going on, all Dracula has to do is say like, you know what? I'm not up for another transfusion tonight. Uh, we're not going to, he can like n- skip that. Right. Chooses not to mm-hmm. do it. Yep. And then he can. Yep. Mm-hmm. Is he like? Maybe he thinks he could get another Renfield out of this. Maybe. Right. But, but he's no. still not thinking it all the way through. Like, yeah. do like the genius idea of like bit mischievous. Like, what if I take the doctor that's supposed to cure me, and just kind of turn him, like you said, into another Renfield or whatever he's trying to turn him into there. So I think that yeah. is. I think that's pretty genius. Um. Blood yeah. parasites. So I love that. That was my next question. Yeah. What do you all make of this idea that like all of the supernatural elements of the Universal Monsters seem to be getting removed for this scientific explanation? Like it is pressure on the cranium and this adrenaline that is coursing through your body that is causing you to become the Wolfman. It is blood parasites that is causing you to become a a vampire. What do we feel? I don't necessarily love that we're trying to root this in science. I don't love Mm -hmm. it, but it makes sense for the time. Yeah, it does. Um, I think when, mm -hmm. I mean, we were just talking about that. All that, yeah, like all that atomic bomb stuff, when when we're moving to a more scientifically minded society, that I it makes sense that they try to come up with something no matter how lame it is it makes sense that that's what they do yeah it's uh exactly well said because i i I mean i i I think there's sort of like this rejection of the mystical you know the the lack of you know we're, we're not so into suspending our disbelief here let's we really need to explain this in some way that's makes sense even though it never does you know uh this the science is pretty dubious in all of these movies but they tend to say to some kind of explanation is what they tend to go for and um that keeps going i mean i even some movies like they're not teaching mary shelley's frankenstein pretty well no 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 but i mean even even you know like i I rewatched spring which is a movie i Mm -hmm. love uh aaron moorhead and justin benson's Mm -hmm. movie and there's like this whole scientific explanation about why she turns into a monster and stuff like that and it it's probably rooted in some sort of real theory but to me it sounds like bullshit Mm -hmm. (laughs) too you know Mm -hmm. and and so it's sort of it's not like it doesn't happen anymore like there's not that sort of stuff happening uh in movies but uh here it's just sort of there's not a lot of effort put into the explanation it's just sort of like oh it's blood parasites and we can we can soften your bones with this mold that we're going to collect go, that, through your skin. That, that's the thing. Yeah. That like is, and hair, yeah. they don't shave his head or anything. It's just, yeah. 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 So, so Lon Chaney, we've talked a little bit about him and the wolf man and being emo. He gets his cure. I mean, again, he, sh- it's a continuation. I mentioned this last time we, we spoke and I don't think it's on purpose, but each progressive Wolfman movie or each progressive Wolfman appearance, Chaney in human form, 
Cheney is Larry Talbot when he's not the Wolfman is progressively more violent towards others. You see him enter the mm-hmm. picture here and he's immediately belligerent and threatening with Meliza. Like, don't you know that I've come a long way? Don't you know that like the moon, the moon is going to change tonight and I'm going to become a creature again? No, I've just met you. Sir, this is an Arby's drive through what, what are you doing here? Like, please, like... And Shady could pick any other night of the month to come... He's once again chosen the full moon. But the sense of, of entitlement and the sense of like everything comes, I come first no matter what. And you're seeing like, I don't know if it's a subtle commentary that like this, lycanthrop- this lycanthropy is taking over other aspect of Talbot's personality as the movies progress. That there's really not a true separation of man and beast that this beast side is actually present in Talbot no matter what and now it's like it's truly taking him over Mm -hmm. well maybe if your brain's being pressured like a lot of pressure on your brain maybe that Mm -hmm. causes you to be a jerk I don't don't know yeah that's that's me being generous at best but yeah (laughs) <laughs> Brian's I have nothing to add. Just... That was just like it's yeah, I mean just I at this point in the series I'm like I don't even know yeah. what's going on anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit and and I'm like this is the one yeah. I've probably seen the least of all of them and I just kind of go I I yeah. okay, so <laughs> Well, there's very little Wolfman action here. I mean, there's really not a lot. Very little right. Frankenstein action. It's going to be a short episode. Mm-hmm. Like like less Frankenstein action than right. Wolfman like, action. Yeah. If this was a Wendy's commercial in the eighties, the old lady would be saying, "Where's the Frankenstein's monster?" Like that would be the ad, yep. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like if Glenn Strange made five hundred bucks for this movie, like he did for the last one, he would be getting overpaid, basically, uh, based on how much we were like, <laughs> "Wait, he made nothing for House of Frankenstein." Like this time around, be like, "You got paid five hundred for this?" Like, good lord. Did he work oh my two goodness. days? That's Egg. the thing I'm curious about. Um, and couldn't find an answer. Like, I like I was looking around, and I just, like... Could not have. There's no way he movie. could have. I mean, even the footage at the end is, like, lifted from Ghost of Frankenstein, right? Like, he's not even... Have the yep. beams falling on him. It's like, yeah, we're just going to cut old footage in. Yep. Good work if you can get it. So, yep. But there is one... And again, Lon Chaney looks beat by the during this movie like that is some hard living you know like drinking the the devil's water is definitely taking a toll on cheney he has one really nice moment of 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 acting here where when he walks out on the balcony to see if the cure has taken and the moonlight hits him cheney draws himself up to his full height and it is almost like a few years melt off his face. And you see it. It's actually a pretty wonderful moment. And you see like this pressure fall off his shoulders. You see the relief on his face. His shoulders like become unclenched. They no longer slouch. And he becomes about like two to four inches taller in that moment. And it's actually really, really nice. And then he and O'Driscoll kind of embrace like this unearned romance somehow takes place. Yes. Right. <laughs> well, it's yeah. kind of fun, you know, that after all of this, Larry Talbot 
kind of gets to yeah. be the hero of the movie. He gets yeah. his uh, leading man moment. Yep. So, mm-hmm. so what else do we have? Oh, I guess we got to talk. Yeah, there's really little Frankenstein in this movie. Um, this really is like this, the second movie now where your mad doctor has stolen the show from everybody, right? Like for a House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula movie, it's really about your mad doctor. In this case, you have Onslow Stevens playing Dr. Franz Edelman. And as much as I loved Boris Karloff in House of Frankenstein and how like he's really like eating in that movie, like he's loving every minute, I love Stevens in this role. I think he's having the time of his life. Um, it's a very fun performance. I think it makes the movie. But what do y'all think of... And is it more vampire or is it more Jekyll and Hyde? What are we seeing here? <laughs> it's sort of weird. It doesn't really follow the, I guess, rules no. of vampirism like at all. Because he gets, he gets a shot mm-hmm. of Dracula blood, but he sort of turns into the wolfman. <laughs> Kind of thing, you know. He sort of turns into this beast, beast yeah. man who's at night. He turns into this, uh, this, you know, like the Doctor Hyde, uh, I mean, Mister mm-hmm. Hyde character. Mm-hmm. So he's, he doesn't seem to be a vampire. He doesn't seem to be drinking any blood. He just sort of attacks people and strangles mm-hmm. them. I guess. Yeah, but he uh, has. He loses his reflection, which is th- yeah, right, which is vampire, vampiric. which is cool yeah. because. But he likes to strangle people, which is more... More like Jekyll and Hyde, like more of a Mr. Hyde thing. He rips out throats, Mm -hmm. like one of the... I think the um, his servant, he like rips out his throat. That's a werewolf. And you don't... Which is why Mm -hmm. they blame Talbot, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a wolfman-ish kind of thing he's doing. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like he becomes all three of the monsters. And I... In some respect. I... I tend to think more Jekyll Same. and Hyde because of his yeah. psychedelic dream. Yeah. Um, because that feels lifted from the Frederick March. From, I mean, it, yeah. may, it might be in the what would have been a contemporary movie at that time, the Spencer mm-hmm. Tracy remake, but I've never seen that one. Um, but yeah. Is Edelman tragic? I kind of think so. Yeah. I like like I like Boris Karloff in House of Frankenstein. He's pure evil. Boris Karloff, and he's having a fun. And he's pure evil. Uh, Edelman is like. You know, you kind of feel for him, and you kind of yeah. like him to begin yeah. with because he's just helping people out. Like he's 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 helping out Dracula, he's helping out the Wolfman, and then this kind of mm-hmm. jerk thing happens to him, and then like yeah. So and then he, he has a moment of like, oh, I could bring back Frankenstein's monster, but oh, that's a bad idea. And so like you kind of you kind of are on his side, and he's really the star of the movie. And uh-huh. so like like so I yeah, I don't know like I I dig him, I really like him, yeah. I like him more every time I watch this movie. So yeah. yeah. I feel like he didn't ask for any of this. Like you see at the start of the movie and he's not even sleeping in a bed. And I think the suggestion that he's like sleeping in kind of like his like leather chair suggests that like, this is a guy that works himself to exhaustion. I think they even suggest like one of the things that he's done is he's like developed this mold that has like cured other people. And he like works at this frantic pace to help others. And like he promises Nina, he's like, once we're able to cure this child, like you're next. Like, I want to make sure that like, you've worked so hard on this. Like you need to be one of the beneficiaries, beneficiaries of it. And you feel like, unlike 
with uh, Neiman and Daniel, like it feels sincere that there's this real affection yeah. that Edelman has towards Nina. And you see like in that dream sequence he has, he has a vision of Nina yeah. when she doesn't have like her hunchback, when she doesn't have her physical affliction. And you see Jane Adams as she presents in real life, which like she's a very beautiful woman. Um, well, again, had a very short Hollywood career. Like by like 1953, yeah. she's out of the scene. Um, but she's like really fun here in this like short kind of like the voice of reason and the conscious of Edelman uh, as well. And it's yep. it makes it all the more tragic when Edelman in his Doctor Hyde form chokes her to death, like he kills her, um, mm-hmm. and. You know, we talked about Kenton and Ghost of Frankenstein and how flat that movie looks. But in House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, I think what Kenton does do well are action sequences. Like that uh, Edelman running through the village of Viseria and scampering about and trying to get away from the villagers. Like that, and the horse drawn carriage, like going through the. going through the village uh, and them fighting on it and then spilling off of it. Like that is actually really cool stunt for the time. And it looks great. I really love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, and he has that mm-hmm. big shadow scene that he kind of lifts mm-hmm. out of yeah. lost souls at one point. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think the only movie in this whole franchise that doesn't look like it belongs mm-hmm. in the franchise sure. is ghost of Frankenstein. Yeah. Whereas yeah. all the others have, you know, they've got the canted angles and they've got the interesting mm-hmm. compositions and the shadows and uh, everything is down pat, except in Ghost of Frankenstein. That's the only one that just looks, from a visual standpoint, yeah. out of place yeah. in yeah. the series to me. So, Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Edelman is uh, maybe done in by believing in the fundamental goodness of people. And part of that is having like Nina around yeah. who he listens to rightly listens to her when you know he raises mm-hmm. the same argument that Atwill's character does in Ghost, like, hey, do we we have a moral out this is a you know, Frankenstein's creature is a you know, we don't have the fuck right to kill it, like isn't that murder where Talbot and Nina argue all this creature has done is commit murder and crime, like it would be a crime it's already dead it would be a crime to bring it back to life. And Edelman's thinking, I can fix it. Mm-hmm. Like, he's another in a long line of, right. like, you know, like the yeah. I can fix you. Um, but he listens. Like, he's the first one to power the machine down. And it's, uh, and you do get, like, scenes from Wales to Frankenstein pictures here, if I recall as well, right? Yeah. Mixed in with yeah, the yeah. idea of, like, I can have this creature run amok in the village. It would be awesome. Um, so I do love his like mad scientist. I just wanted to talk about Steinmel for a minute and like skeleton uh, nags because I don't know what he's particularly doing in this movie. Uh, he is the kind of like Renfield Fritz esque character, the villager that is kind of stirring the pot. Sure. Um, he's the oh, brother, his brother who's killed. Yes, that is kind of gives you the level of thought that went into this picture. Like, I don't know what Nags is Mm -hmm. going for, but I love it because he is 
really the villain like if you were to say that that is the villain of this movie like he's like sweaty and just like his mm-hmm. skin looks disgusting and there's just something about him that is just grotesque um and just his mm-hmm. voice like it's really the sense like he's really taking on like the dwight fry role i think here right right yeah poor, poor dwight, dwight is actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dwight. yeah, it would have been yeah. a good Dwight Fry role. It would there, have been right? a great one for him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I actually really like that guy because I feel like, as as with today, but especially back then, there were just a mm-hmm. lot of really beautiful people in movies back then, and we have only beautiful people in movies now again, which is sad. So it's cool to see like a distinguished looking person have this like interesting yeah. role. And but yeah, I totally see it. Like, is it uh, in the? Is it Miss Carmody? Carmody is that her name? In the mist, mm-hmm. the the villain in the mist. Um, I can't. Yeah, maybe yeah. I don't remember. Um, anyway, so like he has kind of that like, he's not a religious zealot, but he has that kind of like, rebel rousing, you know, what's uh, what is it? What's that app that like next door, like kind of mom mentality going mm-hmm. on here? And I kind of yeah, he's that. definitely stirring the pot. Yeah. He's definitely yeah. agitating. He's the yeah. one that gets the villagers to get the. Although it really, let's face it, it does not take a lot to get villagers to grab the pitchforks and the torches in these movies. Unfortunately, he would die, and like he only he passed away around forty three in nineteen fifty five of cirrhosis of the liver. Like he had a lot of like roles, obviously playing the villain in a lot of roles. Like this was not the guy that is like we need a romantic leading man. Get me scat, you know, get me skags. Yeah, yeah. I think he does. I, I think he looks. Oh, awesome. he definitely does. Just, and that's kind of why yeah. I just wanted to point him out yeah. really briefly here. Uh, and also, I'm, yeah, he's not nope. in any of the other movies. It's a, he, it would have been it cool to see him in other stuff. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, it, well, like you said, he probably sort of fulfilled. You know, Dwight Fry sort mm-hmm. of fulfilled the role he mm-hmm. would play in those other movies. Okay. Yeah. Here's my last thing before we go. Jane Adams is Nina. And the reason I bring this up is twofold. Number one, her character is killed in this movie. Like, she's strangled to death by Edelman. And in pitching this movie, I I love the poster art for all of these movies. Like, I love the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman poster. And the one for this is also gorgeous. Well, when it lists the monsters, it lists Frankenstein's monster, Wolfman, Dracula, Mad Doctor, and Hunchback. And I feel that's really unfair and really gross. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, unlike is. Daniel, yeah, yeah the, there's uh, you know I'll continue. I'll I'll shut up for a second. Oh, oh no! It's it's like yeah, it, uh, that always feels ableist to me. And even like her getting her hunchback, you know, cured, quote unquote, mm-hmm. seems like I don't think Nina mm-hmm. cares that much. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So like that's it. That was something that kind of bothered me more this time. That what watching it, I was like, why I don't. This, yeah. this seems mean. <laughs> like, it just, yeah. She is, there's nothing monstrous about her. If anything, she's the moral voice of the movie. Not at all. Like, she's yeah. the one that, she's the one that yeah, convinces right. yep. Edelman to not bring back the monster. Like, she's the one listening, looking out for Talbot along with Meliza. And it's, to, and what mm-hmm. struck me as well, not just that she's listed on the poster, but in like reading up in this movie, part of the reason why Talbot 
does not appear so much as the Wolfman in this movie. It's because the idea is to have him survive until the end. And according to the Hayes Code, if he were to kill a character as the Wolfman in this movie, then he would have to be killed at the end of this movie. He would have to be punished for his actions. Which to me is pretty easy. Just don't have him kill anybody, but what do I know? So they're like, okay, well the answer then is like, don't have him appear that much as the Wolfman. Nina is killed. And to me, that suggests that some part of the writers, whether they're conscious or unconscious of it, feel that like her hunchback is some sort of monstrous affliction. And again, that just feels really unfair. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah. that goes that goes back a hundred years. Well, longer, but because uh, the because uh, mm-hmm. Hunchback of Notre Dame with Lon Chaney Senior, yeah, not a horror film, not a monster movie in any. but it's kind of like it gets lumped into that it does and that always i talked about this (laughs) a little bit in the last episode that's always sort of bugged me that it gets lumped in with the other monster movies you know Mm -hmm. it's like oh phantom of the opera and hunchback of notre dame he played these monsters it's like quasimodo isn't a monster yeah (laughs) and and of the 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 monsters in this particular thing like they're they're monsters of circumstance. Like, yeah. Dracula was a regular guy, became a vampire. Well, I guess. You know, it depends on your origin story of choice. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the Wolfman is a regular guy, gets bitten by a wolf, has to deal with this stuff. Frankenstein doesn't... No. The monster doesn't want to be a monster, and he's stuck having to do this thing. You know, she... You know, like, the hunchback is... that. That's how they... Yeah, and the mad doctor life. was, like, so, turned by this, like, like, transfusion. And he was just trying to help Dracula. Mm-hmm hoisted by this own petard yep and so this is the moral lesson of this movie is don't help anybody if you know if edelman just like said (laughs) go away like i'm not helping you um and this is why health insurance is a scam uh you know if you know uh So this is why, like, Ebenezer Scrooge was right. Like, you know, let them die and decrease the surplus population. Um, just just don't help anyone, I would say. And, and this would be a very short movie, but, you know, that's the moral lesson here, folks. That's what we're taking away from it. I kid that it's not... I feel like when I say that, there's somebody that's going to be out there like, yeah, that, that's serious, like that's right? how he feels. Yes. What a jerk! Yes. Po- yeah, yeah. yeah. oh boy. Do we have anything yeah. else on this movie? Which I feel is really fun. We have said very little on Frankenstein because there's just very little to be said. It's barely, it just kind of yeah. lurches yeah. around the laboratory and yeah, gets burned in a fire. There you go. Yep. Ghost of Frank, not even his own fire, just Ghost of Frankenstein's fire. Yeah, yeah, it's a cost cutting measure. Uh, so listeners, thanks so much for listening to the our episode on the House of Dracula. We got one more left to go in our Frankenstein series. Kind of sad to see it come to a close. Um, I've really enjoyed, I love these movies. Um, A lot of them were first time watches for me in terms of like when we decided we were going to do them, like half of the series was a first time watch. And I've, with maybe the exception of Ghost of Frankenstein, which I don't think I'll ever revisit again, um, I've appreciated like all of the others and I could see firing them up during the spooky season. 
Um, so I'm really, but I'm really excited to talk about our next one. But before we say goodbye for the day, Andrew, what is coming up with the Dead Letter Movie Podcast, and where can our listeners find more of you? Yeah. Um, so uh, our last time I was on, I talked about our Sundance episode being up. That is up. Um, you know, just learn about some indie movies that'll hopefully be coming down the pike eventually. Um, this uh, by the time this episode is up, we should have at least one of our best picture um, rundown episodes in. Um, with the ten of them, we usually will break it up between five and five um, and discuss that. Um, and then next month, not exactly sure what we'll do, but we're definitely going to do something with Dune. But I don't know what yet, but we'll do something there. Um, and that you can find us at uh, 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 com, And you can, our Instagram is deadlettermovie, I believe. Um, I would, there's one of them is movie, one of them is movies. Either way, you'll find it. Um, just type it in, you'll find us. Um, and then if you, uh, for me, you can just find me on uh, Letterbox. That's uh, as Andrew Fabry, F A B R Y. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, I'll be your friend. And I always love talking movies yeah. with you. So let's get you on for some of the paranormal mm-hmm. activities and others. Yeah, whichever. Yeah, whichever one, like, I don't know yes. what's the least Which one will so. you hate? <laughs> let's yeah. get you on for that. For me, it's, I've only yeah. watched the first yeah. four in the last one that came out, which I really liked, uh, Next of Kin. I liked mm-hmm. Next of Kin, okay. I think, more than most people do. Like, I appreciated that it was actually its own thing mm-hmm. and a standalone movie, and I thought it was actually, like, a really well-done one as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Some, I've only seen the first three, and somewhere mm-hmm. I have, like, a chronological cut of them, um, but... Yeah, I haven't, like... Yeah, I haven't, there's, like, there's seven of them. Five. I can't remember. There's, well, like, there seven of them, yeah. Five. There's seven of them? Don't know. Where think, was I? Um, okay. Yeah. A lot of people like tapped out after way. four. I've only seen the first two <laughs> A lot of people, three. like three was the height, I think, no, for a lot of people. And then four yeah. was not good. The end of three... Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's the one you should pick there, I think. Andy. That's the like, ghost of Frankenstein so, of this. Well, do you know how like each right, one okay. they have a a and now we're getting right into paranormal activity. Um so in each of the first few movies they have like a piece of technology they use to create like a pretty cool it's like part three they use the oscillating fan. Like part oscillating four they fan, use like yeah. the Xbox yeah. Connect to try to do that. Just to give you an idea of how it does not work. Alright. Yeah. Yeah, uh, not good. Not very money. good. Okay. All right. But not no, it doesn't work. Yeah. All right. Speaking of what doesn't work, no, I'm just okay. kidding. Brian, the hardest. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I know. I was going to say, Brian's the hardest working man <laughs> of this show in terms of like having a million <laughs> projects and writing projects. So, what I said is so inaccurate as to be insulting. Um, Brian, <laughs> tell us what you have coming up. For your writing, for movies for life, uh, for the next IHOP. What's next on the sure, IHOP menu? Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, that was a that was a big. I could talk IHOP week, so. for fucking hours. That was wonderful, man. by the way. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a blessed day. Okay, um, goth me feels like I have. To Denny's is great Denny's too. You don't have to. Why pick? I don't, I don't know. You don't have to. Why yeah. the hate? Hey, yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Denny's to me though is more you're right, you're teenage right. Friday night party's over mm-hmm. let's go get a slammy and just like I don't and write bad poetry yeah, yeah. 
and you know be the uncool yeah. cool kids yep. anyway maybe nice. going to see bikini nice. kill in the nice. fall nice. but yeah trying to i know they're touring and we're trying to convince my and not, not not anymore. They're not yeah. here, but like, yeah, they'll, they'll, we're trying to give it. My sister let me know, and she's <laughs> like, "Should I take my eight-year-old? It's an Ollie." I'm like, "Yes, take your eight-year-old to see Bikini Kill. It will be awesome." Anyway, Brian, yeah, yeah Brian, go Brian. see Bikini <laughs> Kill. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, sounds good. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, if you are waiting to see Bikini Kill, you can go over to Manor Vellum and check out my latest... How's that for a segue? Uh, Check out my latest uh, um, installment of the Faces of Frankenstein series, which is about the last four Hammer movies, um, minus horror of Frankenstein, which I will get to later. Um, And then... Coming up also uh, for Valentine's Day, I wrote on, as I mentioned before, um, Moorhead and Benson's Spring, and uh, it's celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, which is... Love that movie. Crazy. That movie's cool. That movie. I love that yeah. movie so much, um, and I loved it more um, watching it again. Um, yeah, and so I've got some other projects that are going to be popping up on, on Bloody Disgusting, and uh, movies for life. We are uh, we are just about to drop our imaginary friends episode about Drop Dead Fred and Harvey, and then we are doing best picture winners and best picture losers. So for best picture winners, we're doing Rebecca uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, and then Billy nice. Wilder's The Apartment. So that's over at Movie Life Pod uh, on Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, so you can find us there, and you can find so me. You can find me across all the socials at Brian Waves Forty Two. What's that? What's a best picture? Is like is it wins best picture, but you don't like it? Or no, no. A best picture loser like, is something that was nominated but didn't nominated win. but did win. Okay. Yeah. Okay. At some yeah. point, when you do a Hitchcock movie, I would recommend you reach out to Rebecca McCallum from Talking Hitchcock and have her on. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. One of the yeah. most intelligent persons in the game right now and like if you know if i ever had to like if if, let's say i was ever kidnapped and they said like in order to get freed you need to call someone to speak for an hour about something off the top of their head on any topic i would just pick rebecca and say like talk about vertigo and i would be freed at the one hour (laughs) and one second mark because like we just she's brilliant sure anyway Um, pitch to my friend awesome. Rebecca. Listen yeah. to Talking Hitchcock. She's awesome. From us, yeah. you know, coming up is Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, which can't wait to talk about. Uh, you can find us at thepodandthependulum.com, which is where all of our back episodes are all laid out nice and neatly. You can find us on all your podcatchers. And if you go there, leave us like, you know, a five star rating on Spotify. Please go to Apple and leave us a five star rating and review. It helps new listeners find us, which is uh, always what we're looking for. We've stuck on like 120 reviews for a while, getting a little tired of saying that every week. Um, so, new listeners, please go ahead, leave us a few kind words and some sen- sentences and five stars uh, and say what you like about the show. I would find that very appreciative. I would really dig it if you did that. 
Uh, it's a free and easy way to support the show. If you care to do so, we have a Patreon page where you can go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. We have about 50 hours of bonus content up there right now throughout all three tiers. And uh, we have bonus content every month. In January, we posted some Oscar talk where Steven and I went through all the best picture nominees. Um, I got to talk to a couple of the cast, uh, sorry, the crew members right now, what we're doing this month. But I think we have some Frankenstein related stuff that is coming up, depending on who's going to be on for that. But it's an easy way to support the show for a couple bucks a month, get even more of us and help us like get you know like we buy a lot of books you've mentioned some of the titles we've mentioned here um the blu-ray sets the research that goes in um i you know want to pay my cast my i would like to give every penny to like my crew here as it comes in um because like they work really hard uh and help me out tremendously so pod and the pendulum over on patreon just google those two things and you find us and that's my soft pitch for that otherwise pod and pendulum over on twitter pod and the pendulum over on blueski pod and the pendulum over on instagram Find us on all of those places if you are social media inclined. Follow me over on Letterboxd at Mike Chump Change, where I post everything I see, which later today will be Lisa Frankenstein. About to go have a nice date to go catch that with my wife at the Alamo Draft House. So we're going to sign off for now. We'll be back next week with Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, which very excited to chat about. Andrew, thanks again for joining us. Brian, always a pleasure. We'll see y'all in a week. Absolutely. Take care. Hello. I'm Mr. Red. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. And no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course. Talk to Mr. Red. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Red. Go right to the source and ask the horse, he'll give you the answer that you endorse. He's always on a steady course, talk to Mr. Red. People yakety-yak the streak and waste your time a day, but Mr. Ed will never speak unless he has something to say. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and this one will talk till his voice is hoarse. You never heard of a talking horse? Well, listen to this. I am Mr. Ed. This has been a Filmways television presentation.